You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Nehemiah chapter 4, we'll begin reading in verse 11 and read down through the end. My intention is to get through this chapter uh, today. We've been at it a few times, but there's just a lot here, and I want to make sure we get all of it out of it that we can. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 11, this kind of gives the situation they're in, in case you haven't been here. It says, And our adversaries said, They shall not know, neither see, till we come in the midst among them and slay them and cause the work to cease. They're going to kill them. The enemies are out for blood. Verse 12. And it came to pass that when the Jews which dwelt by them came, they said unto us ten times. And the idea there is if they said it once, they said it ten times. They came to us over and over and said, From all places whence ye shall return unto us, they will be upon you. Like you can't go anywhere. They're going to be all over you. Verse 13, therefore said I in the lower places behind the wall and on the higher places, I even set the people after their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and rose up and said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, be not ye afraid of them. I love that. Remember the Lord, which is great and terrible, and fight for your brethren, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your houses. And it came to pass when our enemies heard that it was known unto us, and God had brought their counsel to not that we returned all of us to the wall, every one unto his work. And it came to pass from that time forth that the half of my servants, this is in Nehemiah's words again, the half of my servants wrought in the work, the other half of them held both the spears, the shields, and the bows, and the habergeons, and the rulers were behind all the house of Judah. They which build it on the wall, and they that bear, the burden, bear burdens, with those that laid it, every one with his, one of his hands wrought in the work, and with the other hand held a weapon. For the builders, every one had his sword girded by his side, and so builded. And he that sounded the trumpet was by me. And I said unto the nobles, and to the rulers, and to the rest of the people, The work is great and large, and we are separated upon the wall, one far from another. In what place, therefore, ye hear the sound of the trumpet, Resort ye thither unto us, our God shall fight for us. So we labored in the work, and half of them held the spears from the rising of the morning till the stars appeared. Likewise, at the same time, said I unto the people, Let everyone with his servant lodge within Jerusalem, that in the night they may be a guard to us and labor on the day. So neither I nor my brethren nor my servants nor the men of the guard which followed me, none of us, Put off our clothes, saving that every one put them off for washing, which we should be thankful for. <laughs> At least they were washing their clothes. But the idea there is that the work and the preparation never ended. They, they worked round the clock. And there's a lot here. I mean, we could spend a few more weeks here with all the lessons. But tonight I'm going to preach the idea of are you going to listen to the voices of fear or are you going to listen to the voices of faith? Because we make a choice who we give a hearing to. We're going to listen to the voices of fear on one hand or the voices of faith on the other hand. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. 
We've been in Nehemiah 4 a few times already, and you might be thinking uh, that we should be done with this chapter, but there's just a lot to learn here. The enemies are pressing on them. They're facing danger. The tendency is to become discouraged when you face one struggle after another. I know that's my tendency if it seems like one thing after another. I, I was talking to somebody just this week, and, and we've met a few times, and, and they said, I just want a week in which nothing goes wrong. You ever feel that way? You just want a week in which nothing goes wrong and everything's okay? Do you ever feel that way? Well, the children of Israel trying to re... I see a lot of people shaking their head, by the way. I think we've all been there. The children of Israel are trying to rebuild the walls here. And, and they and Nehemiah both, I guarantee they were feeling uh, like nothing is going right. And we, we could, we're not going to go review the messages we've preached before. But the last time we were in this, in this chapter, we talked about the winds of discouragement... And how you're discouraged when it gets hard. And you're discouraged when all of these things take place. And if we're not careful, we will give in to the discouragement. So Nehemiah gives a message of encouragement. And while also putting them in the best position to overcome their fears. You know, we need messages of encouragement. Uh, I, I don't know if you ever turn on the news. But if you ever do, you need messages of encouragement. Some of you are facing big trials. And you're dealing with difficult tasks with no end in sight. It seems like the situation you're in is not going to end anytime soon. And you've already run out of strength. You haven't received good news in a while. And you need to listen to a voice that says, be not afraid and reminds you of what's true. Because when we're discouraged and when things are hard, we tend to give more hearing to the things that aren't true. We pay attention to those things that appeal to our emotions and we need voices of truth in the discouraging times. See, God's people have to decide which voices they're going to listen to. And in this moment, they had two categories of voices to which they could listen. They could, on one hand, listen to the voices of fear. They could listen to their enemies. I mean, their enemies were making... They weren't hiding at all. They were making threats and they were... They were getting together and they were having rallies talking about what they're going to do to the children of Israel and they're mocking God's people. They could have listened not just to their enemies, they also had allies who were panicking all around them. And we already talked about how Nehemiah basically the wording is if they came once, they came ten times saying, wherever you go, they're going to be there. I promise you, they're waiting for you. They're supposed to be their friends. These were their allies telling him, watch out, because they were listening to the voice of the enemies. They could have listened to their own hearts. Folks, when we get discouraged, our hearts tend to lead us astray. And we know the verse, Jeremiah 17, 9, our, dis- our hearts are deceitful. and Those deceitful hearts, they can cloud what is true with fear. And fear can make people think and believe and do some crazy things. I mean, if you ever, it, just in the dark, at, at night... You ever just kind of in your room at night and, and just because it's dark, you think you see something that's not really there? Okay, maybe you don't, but I, sometimes my mind plays tricks on me. I mean, at nighttime, the darkness, it can, it can be tricky. You hear noises. I mean, I remember uh, when we moved into the house we're in and we love and are thankful for the house, but when the, the heat kicks on in the middle of the night, it sounds like somebody just took a sledgehammer to the back door. Boom, just like that. And the first time it happened, I mean, I, I got up and I'm running around the house and trying to figure out where the noise came from. And, 
It was just the house, wel- it was a house welcoming us, just saying, hey, welcome here. We're going to scare you to death in the middle of the night. There's a lot of things that when people aren't thinking rationally and they're afraid they, that you can think and see and, and do some crazy things, voices of fear only focus on what could go wrong. Have you ever met somebody who immediately jumps to the worst case scenario? Yeah, you know, there are certain people that, you know, the people that you immediately regret asking, how are you doing today? Because you know they're going to tell you exactly how they're doing. You know, that's the first option they had. They could listen to the voices of fear. And when you listen to the voices focused on what could go wrong, you end up afraid. But they had another option. They could listen instead to the voices of faith. See, the voices of fear, they have a message of fear and and they have a message of what could go wrong. What, what kind of message does a voice of faith present? Well, a voice of faith focuses not on a what, it focuses on a who. It focuses on, number one, a voice of faith focuses on a person. See, Nehemiah begins with a Godward focus. Uh, voices of fear focus on the what's. What could go wrong? What, there is, what is there to fear? I mean, think about the circumstances, all the what's, but a true voice of faith those people that can help you in the tough times and the discouraging times, they're not focusing on the what's, they're focusing on the who, and that who is God himself, a person. You ever been around somebody who, with every conversation, leaves you thinking about God? And I'm thankful for those people in my life. It seems like every time I'm around them, I feel like I'm closer to God because the conversations go back to God and the thoughts go back to God and their faith just really inspires me. And I'm thankful for those kind of people in my life. And we all ought to strive to be people that when someone leaves us, they have a stronger faith. When someone leaves us, they're thinking about God. And I hope that you're that kind of a person, that you're a voice of faith in somebody else's life. When you begin your thoughts with God, it helps you see everything and everyone else clearly. See, a proper view of God stops fear before it gets started. How does that happen? Well, Nehemiah compares the size of their enemies with the size of their God. He says in verse 14, be not afraid of them, remember the Lord. You know, think about what he's doing. Essentially, is he's saying, okay, here's the Lord. Hey, look at him. Think about how big he is. Now, here are our enemies. And you need to stop and think about the size of our enemies compared to the size of our God. The ability of our enemies compared to the ability of our God. And when you, when you start with your perspective and your focus is on the size of your God and how good your God is and how, much, how many blessings your God bestows upon you and how well he takes care of us, then all of the problems and all of the enemies and all of the circumstances that could go wrong, suddenly they seem much, much smaller. And when that happens, you realize there's not much to be afraid of. What can an enemy do to me that God can't handle? They're not stronger than God. They're not wiser than God. They're not more right than God. It's not like our enemies, if whatever they say, it's not like what they're saying is true and what God is saying is not. We can trust God because of who he is. And we have promises from God about fear. Isaiah 41, 10 says, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. 
And there's nothing, as we read in John 10, when, John, when Jesus talks about his Father's hand and his hand, and we have security in the fact that no man shall pluck them out of my hand or my Father's hand. We have, we have the strongest God. He is stronger than our enemies. He knows more than our enemies. There is nothing to be afraid of. I remember as a kid, when, when, and I've told this story before, walking with my dad, if, if we were walking at night and I was by myself, I would be afraid, but with my dad, I wasn't afraid. And when you start to view your problems and view your circumstances, not starting with the circumstances, don't start with the what's, start with the who. Look at your circumstances through the who that you follow. Look at the circumstances. Let him be the telescope. Let him be the lens through which you look at all of your problems because everything that you look at through the lens of God seems small. 2 Timothy 1.7, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. He can be trusted. We don't have to be afraid. And notice who heard the voices of faith. This is interesting. Look at verse 15. After Nehemiah says, Be not afraid of them, remember the Lord, which is great and terrible. Look at verse 15. It says, It came to pass when our enemies heard that it was known unto us, and God had brought their counsel to naught, that we returned all of us to the wall, every one unto his work. You know, it's interesting that their enemies had an idea about how strong God was. Because they felt confident that once their enemies had heard that God had worked on their behalf, they suddenly had more confidence. You know, sometimes I think it's interesting. Our enemy, we, you know, our enemy is Satan. And Satan is strong, but he's not foolish. He knows God's strength. Don't let Satan have more faith in your God than you do. He knows your God. He knows our God. He knows how strong that our God is. And Satan respects him. Don't ever let Satan believe more in our God than we do. The devil knows his place. And he knows how it ends up for him. And I think sometimes he has more faith in God's ability than some of God's people do. Based on our responses when circumstances are tough. So a voice of faith focuses on a person. A voice of faith, second, focuses on both progress and protection. So it focuses on a person. Sometimes, and I'm not an alliterator usually where I, all of my points start with the same letter. But when they, when they do start with the same letter, it's because it just happened. And I'm thankful for it. A voice of faith focuses on both progress and protection. There's a balance here. Nehemiah called them to double duty. They were to be builders and protectors at the same time. Look at verse 16. It says, And it came to pass from that time forth that the half of my servants wrought in the work, and the other half of them held both the spears, the shields, and the bows, and the haverjins, and the rulers were behind all the house of Judah. So we see here that Nehemiah made progress a priority. In other words, he did not say, okay, we need to stop the work because the enemies are around us. He didn't say, okay, you know what? Now, while we're going through this season where the enemies are trying to get us, we're going to just stop what we're doing. No, in the middle of the, of the trial, in the middle of the danger, Nehemiah did not stop the progress. But at the same time, he said, yes, we are going to continue to work. But at the same time, we also need to protect the priority that we have here at the house of God in the work of God. See, you see this balance here that's interesting 
Verse 17, it says, They which build it on the wall, and they that bear burdens, with those that laid it, every one with, his, with one of his hands, wrought in the work, and with the other hand held a weapon. So you've got these, these men, they've got, it's work and weapons. They, they're working at the same time. They're, they're, they're progressing. They haven't stopped the work, but at the same time, they are protecting what they have. That's the life in God's work. And if it's going to move forward, we have to be willing to labor on one hand, but also protect truth on the other hand. We have to be willing to get involved and, and be involved and get active and work and, pro- and make progress for the Lord. But at the same time, we can't ever do it to where we compromise what we have or the truth that we're protecting. There's both progress and protection here. There's builders with swords. Verse 18, there were many in Judah sworn unto him because he was the, I'm sorry, my page turned, the fans are blowing my page. Verse 18, it says, for the builders, everyone had his sword girded by his side and so builded. And that's interesting here that, that they're builders, but they're carrying swords. That couldn't have been easy. I mean, I, you know how that is if you're a builder and I'm not a builder, but there are plenty of times where I've been working on something um, in the construction field and and, you know, I, and I'm carrying a tool and sometimes I'm like sticking tools in my pockets and, and I'm trying to hold my pants up. You know, I mean, uh, when you have a tool belt, that's a handy thing, isn't it? You have a tool belt and you've got everything in its place. And, uh, but can you imagine, though, doing the work of construction, but also you've got now a big heavy sword on your side. And, and you're, you're not just focused on progress, you're also focused on protection, And this is an important balance for us to see here is that progress is important. We want to finish the work. We want to continue the work. And we want to do some things that that see progress at Eastside Baptist Church, but never at the expense of compromising the truth that we're trying to protect. There's balance here. And and this is a good picture, by the way, of, of the fact that our greatest assets are not physical resources See, it's not about church growth philosophy, and it's not about programs, and it's not about professionalism. Our most important resources are spiritual in nature. My mind goes to Ephesians 6 when I read this, and that Paul wrote about the weapons of our warfare and how those weapons that we truly need in the fight, and he, he calls, he's, one major weapon he calls the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And folks, if we had nothing else, if we didn't have a building, and if we didn't have classes, and if we didn't have a choir, and we didn't have a sound system, and we didn't have any programs, as long as we have God's Word, the sword of the Spirit, we have the only manual we need to be a functioning and effective local church. On the other hand, if we think we have something because we have a nice building... If we think we have something because we have a good crowd, and we think we have something because we've got good special music like we heard tonight, or we think we have something because we have lots of programs to offer and we have lots of, of classes, and, and, but we neglect the foundation of God's spiritual sword, God's word, the spiritual things, we don't have anything that truly matters. Don't lose sight of the fact that God's work is only as effective as his people's willingness to fight for truth. We must be willing to protect truth. We must be willing to protect what's right according to this book. And I hope that you're passionate about protecting the purity of the doctrine of God's word. At the same time that we protect God's word, though, we are to be making progress in the work. See, the work didn't stop just because they faced trouble. 
God's word needs to be protected, sure, but not to the point that we seal off our doors and we become a compound and we say, no, we are here to protect truth and we are here to protect ourselves. And so we build walls and build a gate and say, you're not allowed inside because we're here to protect truth. No, that's the wrong balance too. We have to be careful not to be one of those us four, no more churches. Ever heard of those? Us four, no more. You know, we've got all we need and we're protected and we've got truth and we've got pure doctrine and we don't really want anybody else to come in here and mess it up. That's the wrong mentality to have. Sure, we fight for truth. And yes, we fight for purity of doctrine. But never by neglecting our call to carry God's work forward. We have a purpose to glorify God in a pure way. But we also have a mission and that is to reach the lost. If we ever get to the point that we only focus on protection. And we forget the progress to be made in the work. We become imbalanced. Both ways are true. We can't only focus on progress and forget we have an obligation to protect. That's life in God's work. It's a, it's a balance, a perfect blend of progress and protection. Look at verse 21. So we labored in the work and half of them held the spears from the rising of the morning till the stars appeared. You know, that's, that doesn't sound convenient, does it? There's a lot of cost here. They're carrying a sword, trying to build, and they're staying up all night from the rising of the sun till the stars appear. You know, progress and protection, it's not convenient. And there will be times, folks, listen, there will be times that the priority of progress means late nights. There will be times when it means early mornings. There will be times when it means inconvenient tasks. There will be times where it's difficult responsibilities. It will cost us. If we want to make progress in the work of God, I, I, just this afternoon, I, I was walking out the, the door and I pushed on the door. I was going to lock it behind me and I pushed on the door and it just, it just kind of was loose. It wasn't locking or latching and I tried to fix it and, and uh, it wasn't working. And so, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, I've got, a, I've got all the kids in the car with me. Aaron's out of town. Uh, and I mean, here's where you find out how helpless we really are, husbands and dads. Like, I don't, I don't know what to do. I was listening to the voice of fear in my own heart. Like, what do I do? Well, you know what I did? I first thought I thought of was, I'm going to call Charles. Call Brother Charles. I know he's not going to want me to talk about this, but I called him and I said, hey, Brother Charles, this door is not working. And, I, and he's been up here. He's worked on the doors. He's a trustee. And I said, I, I can't figure out what's going on with it. And we can't really just leave the building unlocked. I said, what do you think we should do? And he said, you know what? Hey, I'll just come right now. It was about 12.45. You know, he was probably like in his footed pajamas, like resting on, the, on his recliner already. You know, maybe not. <laughs> Don't let your mind go there. Okay, so he's probably resting. And he was going to be home for the afternoon, maybe getting ready for that rest I was talking about all morning and teasing everybody with by saying the word rest and nap all morning. And, but you know what he said? You know, I'll just come right now. Because in his mind, and this is... <laughs> I love the picture here. In his mind, like we have a building to protect. But at the same time, we need to make some progress. Like I'm, gonna, I'm willing to do the work. If we're going to protect it, I'm still willing to do the work. He set aside everything and he showed up and he called me. I mean, just like two, I mean, just very quick after he got here and said, yeah, I fixed it. In other words, you don't know what you're doing and you should call me next time. <laughs> how did you not know how to fix this? No, it was really quick. And he, that wasn't his attitude at all. I'm just kidding, but... It just proves, I'm thankful we have men in this church. Honestly, I, I feel like I could call any time 
and say, we need to make some progress here, but progress is not convenient. And progress is not easy. And you might have to start late at night, and you may not get to even go to bed at all. You may be up all night. You may be working hard. And yet it may cost you a Saturday, mo- um, Saturday morning a month to be involved in outreach, and that's not convenient. And it may cost you to, to, to come to prayer meeting, and it may cost you to teach your class and spend time preparing for it. It's going to cost you something to see progress. But listen, folks, it's worth it. God's, worth is wor- God's work is worth the inconvenience. And we ought to be so passionate about progress that we're willing to do the inconvenient things. Protection's going to cost us too. If we value what we have enough to protect it, there will be things asked of you that seem too high. It seems like too much. And why is pastor, you know, requiring this of us, you know, as a teacher? Why is he requiring that of us? Why is he asking our families to get involved on Saturday mornings? And, or why is he asking this standard when we go to camp, the young people might think? And why is there more accountability? I don't understand. We might find ourselves taking a tighter approach to ministry than we would if we were just interested in progress. See, if we were only interested in progress, we wouldn't do things the way that we do here at Eastside. Because the culture's not interested, for the most part, in large part, the culture's not interested in doing the things the way that we do things here. If progress was our only priority, there'd be a lot of fences we would kick down because that's all that matters. But at the same time, it's the perfect blend of protection and progress. And there will be times that we're trying to protect what we have, and we may not even understand it. It may seem too tight, and it may seem unfair, but understand, listen, we're trying to protect and make progress all at the same time. There's a balance to be had. That's what we're doing. We, I, sure, I want progress. I'd love to fill this place up. I love the way it looks tonight. I'm telling you, this is encouraging. I love the way it looks tonight. But we ought to be careful not to say, well, at any cost, progress. I mean, yes, it's going to cost us. But, but also, though, at any cost, protection. Look at verse 22. Likewise, at the same time, said I unto the people, let everyone with his servant lodge within Jerusalem, that in the night they may be a guard to us and labor on the day. Nehemiah asked them to basically make their lives about God's work. And I know this isn't particularly popular, but if we're going to fulfill Matthew 6.33, which says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God, that means God's work should be our first consideration. Your first budget item on every paycheck should be what you give to God's work. Uh, your first, uh, you, you should have weekly responsibilities. You should have weekly responsibilities here that you refuse to let anything else get in the way of. You say, no, listen, God's work is so important to me. I'm not going to just let anything get in the way of it. If you teach, I'm, you say, no, my, my lesson, the lesson, I'm going to teach these children. I'm investing in their spiritual lives. I'm not going to just let that go because something comes up. This is serious to me. Services, every service. It should be a no-brainer. If we're to seek first the kingdom of God, and like Nehemiah was asking of them that their lives should center around God's work, it should be a no-brainer to be involved in the activities of this church. Before you schedule a vacation, consider what you might be missing at church. You say, that is extreme. Well, no, it's seeking God's, God's kingdom first. God will bless his people when they make their lives about his work. You may not even prefer that, but it's hard to argue against it. Look at verse 23. So neither I nor my brethren nor my servants nor the men of the guard 
which followed me, none of us put off our clothes, saving that everyone put them off for washing. You know what he's saying here? Here, listen. He's saying this was a 24-hour-a-day job. It was a 24-hour-a-day task for Nehemiah and these builder protectors. See, you're not just a Christian when you come to church, folks. You have a responsibility to the task all day, every day. You're a child of God, a Christian. You represent, as an ambassador, you represent God in your house. You represent God to your children. You represent God when you're sitting out on your back porch. You represent God when you're driving down the street. You represent God. This is a a 24-hour-a-day calling. You represent God when you're at the store. You represent him when you're at work. You represent him at the dinner table. Children, teenagers, you represent God when you're at school and you're around your friends. You represent God when you're online. You know, it's amazing what some people would never say in person, but they'll say on Facebook. And I think there's a disconnect sometimes in that they forget that even online, whatever picture I put online is a representation somehow of God. Whatever comment I make, everywhere I go, I'm not just a Christian if I'm in the real world, but not the virtual world. No, we're Christians everywhere. Be mindful of your testimony wherever you go and wherever you post. Everywhere we go, this is a 24-hour-a-day task and calling and listen that's not too much a lot of people will balk at the fact that it's 24 hours a day but listen jesus christ gave everything he gave everything so that we could be his and we need fewer five to six hour a week christians and we need some 24 hour a day seven days a week christians that's our calling a voice of faith focuses on a person a voice of faith focuses on both progress and protection, and a voice of faith focuses on partnership. Partnership. Look at 19 through 20. And I said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, the work is great and large, and we are separated upon the wall, one far from another. In what place therefore ye hear the the sound of the trumpet? Resort ye thither unto us. Our God shall fight for us. See, Nehemiah knew there were pitfalls with their situation here. And what he's doing is he's preparing them for war. And he's letting them know, listen, if you ever hear the trumpet sound, then you need to gather in this one spot. This one spot is where we will be strongest. If we stay separated on the wall, we're not going to make it. So we need to gather into one. Are you seeing the parallels? You starting to see it? We need to gather into one spot together because that's where our strength lies. And it's interesting, he said this message was for everybody. It was to the nobles and the rulers, and there was nobody above it. There was nobody below it. And the work, he says, is great and large, but we're separated. We're one far from, the, from another. And as the work progressed, so listen, pay attention to the parallel here. As the work progressed more and more and more, their closeness was affected. See, they started out pretty, pretty close. When they first began over in chapter 3, we see, you see that phrase, next unto him, over and over, and it literally means by their hand. So when this thing started, they were close enough basically to reach out and lock arms. They could have reached out and held hands if they wanted when they started, when the work was just beginning. But as the work made progress, 
as the work got bigger and bigger and bigger, they weren't so close anymore. It, they were separated on the wall. The guy that started next to you, he may be, I mean, he may just barely be in sight down the wall now. And you may not ever even see the guy on the other side of town anymore. So Nehemiah knew if we're going to do this thing and we're going to have strength, we've got to be willing to gather in one place because there's, you're only as strong as your assembly. You're only as strong as you are being together. And listen, this can happen in God's work too. See, when a church is small, you probably feel like you're working alongside everybody. We're, we're all in it together, you know? You see everybody everywhere you go, and you know, you're serving together, and, and whatever event there is, you're doing it together because there's nobody else. It's just you and them, and you're, you're building it together. You're, you're together all the time. And we're not a huge church, but we are in a position where you could go weeks without talking to somebody that you used to be around a lot. It's not the same as when it was small. I mean, you serve in the nursery and, and maybe they're in the choir or you're back in junior church and they're somewhere else and we're in this big, enormous building in a beautiful building, which I'm very thankful for. But honestly, sometimes we come in here and you know we have people sitting all the way over here and people sitting all the way over there and it, it literally, where you sit in the sanctuary, could determine how often you talk to somebody because it's that big. You're in the back, maybe they're in the front, you come in early and they come in late. You know, you begin to feel disconnected. That's the danger. It can start to feel disconnected. And that's exactly what Nehemiah was dealing with. He knew that if they became fragmented, their strength would fade. They were only as strong as they were together. And the more isolated we become, the higher the chances that our faith will be weakened. We live in an increasingly isolated culture. Uh, we, think about it. We live further apart than ever as a church. And it used to be that churches were part of a community. And you lived in a community and everyone worked in that general community. And that, that building was there and everyone came to the church. And that was the community. But now we have people in our church that drive 30, 45 minutes. We have some coming from an hour and a half plus away on Sundays to come worship here. The sense of community has, has it, not just in our church, I mean in general, in the United States of America, the sense of community has slowly begun to disappear. We're more separated than we've ever been. But see, here's the problem is that we're not meant to do this alone. I mean, God created the church. God gave you a church and he gave you friends and he gave you fellowship and he wanted you to be doing this with other people. He did not intend for us to do it alone. It's a partnership. You need others, but others need you. Don't forget that. Listen, that's a good reason to come, uh, come back and, and make every service a priority. That's a good reason not to just walk in after church begins and then leave as soon as it's over because you may not feel like you need the people around you, but it could be that the people around you, they need you. And your words might be exactly what they needed for encouragement that week. But if you don't take the time to reach out, if you don't take the time to let them know that you love them, that you're family, and that you're interested in their lives, they might miss out on a blessing or encouragement that you could have provided. And we have too many modern Christians that view church as something for them. That's kind of the way it's become is that we have church shopping. 
You know, well, you know, I, it's a Yelp review now. You know, this church was fun. They didn't have a great program for my, for my eight-year-old, and the coffee was cold, and, you know, it's like three and a half stars out of five now. It's a Yelp review. And so church becomes a consumer item. Consumerism has taken over many churches where it's about, well, what this church can do for me or what it can't do for me. And instead of coming into a building or to a church family and saying, what can I do for that church? How could I be a blessing to serve? It's like, well, you know, this wasn't right for me. I I didn't really appreciate how they did this or that. And listen, I know everybody's got personalities and you've got preferences. I understand that. But if we would put aside the consumerism that has become modern church and said, no, I'm not going to go to a church so that they can give me everything I want. I'm going to go to a church and be a blessing to as many people in that church family as I can. It'll change the way you come to church. It'll change how early you come. It'll change how late you leave. It'll change how many people that you talk to, that you say hello to. If you're not just concerned about, well, what is in it for me or about me, No, since when is a family all about what you can get out of it? I'm a good family member, a good friend, someone who loves others, is about giving, not just getting. We need some more of that mentality. I don't just mean Eastside, I mean in general. Our church culture and our country has become a consumer item. And this is another reason I feel strongly, and I'm just going to talk about a few things tonight that I think, just so you know, it's not just about me wanting to change this or that. Listen, this is another reason I feel strongly about when we get together, let's sit together. Let's sit close together. See, where you sit is not just about comfort level. If you value the partnership that you have with other people, you should think like Nehemiah and say, we need the closeness. We need the togetherness. We need the strength that comes in partnership. When choosing where to sit, most people ask themselves the question, where am I most comfortable? But what we need to ask is, where can I be the biggest encouragement? If we would ask that question, I think it would change, just, it would change our closeness. See, our closeness affects our strength. Be a part of strengthening this church, be a part of that strengthening process. I mean, one thing I would love to see in our services when people come in, I mean, there's such a fellowship. There's energy and a buzz before church and, and we're not just coming in to just sit and be ready for it. No, we're coming into fellowship. And you say, well, I don't really need it tonight. Well, somebody else might. Somebody else might need that encouraging word from you. And if in your mind you're thinking, well, you know, it's just about what I can get out of it, you'll miss an opportunity to be a blessing to somebody, and they may go the rest of their week discouraged, and you could have helped them. Let's get our eyes off of ourselves. And let's think about, you know, I'm going to go to church early, not because I don't have anything better to do, but because I want to help somebody. And I want to encourage that person. I'm going to sit in a place where I can be around other people so that we can be a family and not just come and ask, well, where am I most comfortable? No, where can I be the biggest blessing? If the work is great and large and we're separated, Nehemiah saw the reasons to come together, not stay apart. Look at what Nehemiah says in verse 20. In what place, therefore, ye hear the sound of the trumpet, resort ye thither unto us. Our God shall fight for us. 
You know, in what place you hear the sound of the trumpet, he says, resort there. Nehemiah tells him, if you ever hear the warning of a trumpet, follow the sound and get there. You know what the word resort means? It means to gather, gather. It means to assemble. Here's what Nehemiah is doing. He sees the trouble and he knows how bad it is out there. And he knows that the voices of fear are screaming loudly. And he sees how the work is growing and progressing. And they're getting further and further apart. They're separating. And they're far from each other. And he also knows that the further people get, the more that they need to come together. Here's the application. The more trouble we face and the more separation we experience, the more we need to assemble in one place. Assembling together does something to strengthen and encourage and teach and help us grow in love together. And I believe this principle is clearly found in Hebrews 10. It says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is out there. But exhorting one another. And so much the more as ye see the day approaching. Friends, the more isolated we become, the more the the wall gets bigger, and the more the church expands, we have a tendency to kind of be isolated. The bigger the church is, the more ministries we serve in, the more separated we are. So much the more we better refuse to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And this is a big reason why, even at times, just to give you some of my thoughts, this is a big reason at times why I'm somewhat hesitant about having other programs going on when we assemble as a church family. You know, we have three opportunities to meet per week. We have Sunday mornings, and Sunday mornings we have children's ministries, which I think is great value in that, and that the focus really, especially with guests, the focus can be on the Lord. And um, we have Sunday nights. We're all together in here. I love Sunday nights. And then we have Wednesday nights, and we have a children's program, and going on and at times a teen program and that takes a certain portion of children and teens and workers out so listen so when we have other programs on wednesday it means that we only meet together as a full church body once a week on sunday nights and that makes sunday night an extremely important service because it's the one time per week we can consistently meet together as a church family minus the nursery and the hall monitors which those have serve an important purpose You know, I see the value in having children or teen programs on Wednesday night, and we'll probably get back to that at some point. But I think the bigger principle is the the importance of coming together as a church family. So much the more. Like Nehemiah said, and like the writer of Hebrews said, uh, this is helpful and, and this is important. Exhorting one another. It's not just important to God, it benefits us. And however it looks, folks, we need to be together. We need the assembly. I need you. You need me. I should sing the Barney song. We're a happy family. You know, we need each other. That's how it's supposed to work, folks. A voice of faith reminds you of that. And any voices in your life that encourage you to minimize the assembling with your church family, they're not helping your faith. Uh, Perhaps we need to filter out some voices and focus first on the voices of faith that are helping us by 
by pointing us to the person of God and, and focusing on pro- progress and protection and then lifting up the importance of partnership, those are the kind of messages we need to hear in an increasingly isolated culture. So what voices are you listening to? Voices that are increasing your fear or helping your faith. See, there's voices of fear everywhere. Turn on the news. The news is a voice of fear. I'm sorry, it just is. It's a voice of fear. Maybe you have a friend with the wrong perspective and they become a voice that increases your fear because they take your eyes off the Lord and when your eyes are off the Lord, you can't view things clearly. Their voices of fear are maybe somebody that doesn't draw you closer to God in your life. A voice of fear is somebody that has a worldly philosophy. You know what a voice of fear, a major voice of fear is that we often give too much credit to? That's our own hearts. It leads us astray. It's deceitful. You need some voices of faith. If we're not careful, the only voices we ever hear all week are voices of fear. And that's why a voice of faith is something like God's word. You need it. And I don't just mean you need it like to check it off your list. You need to eat every day to have the strength to withstand all the voices of fear you're going to face. You need time in, your, in God's word every morning or every night. I say start, start the day off right. Eat first and have the energy because you're going to face some voices of fear during that day. And you need something to combat that. God's word is a voice of faith. And very often as, as Christians, we neglect the most important thing we can do on a daily basis. And that is take in God's word. You need the voice of faith, God's word, in the form of preaching and teaching. You, you need to assemble. I mean, it, I'm not giving you something that, um, this is not my perspective. This is the New Testament. The local New Testament church is God's plan for his people to grow and become what they're supposed to be. And you need a voice of faith on Sundays and a voice of faith on Wednesdays. And you need fellowship with other voices of faith throughout the week. Don't isolate yourself because the voices of fear are not going to stop screaming in your ears. You need something to resist those voices of fear. You need God's word. You need friends that will point you to God and have a good perspective on God that inspire you to be more like God or, or help you with your standards or helping with, help you with your thinking. You need those kind of people in your life. We need voices of faith. We need godly friends. We need the fellowship of God's people. We need our church family. We need to combat the voices of fear that are trying to tear us down and get our perspective off of God. They're trying to get our, our minds to look away from God and look at the enemies and look at the problems, to look at the what's. And we need voices that are remind us of the who. It might be time maybe to tune some of those voices out that are contributing more to your fear than to your faith. Are you going to listen to the voices of fear or the voices of faith? You get to make the choice. I'm telling you, if you will look to God... And you will make the voices of faith a priority in your life. You'll make progress. And you'll, both, you'll, you'll do something for God that you didn't think was possible. It'll take you from where you are to where you need to be. Sometimes it just means shutting out the voices that aren't helping us. And turning our attention to voices of faith. Let's stand together. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.